The United Launch Alliance is preparing for the first launch of their new Vulcan rocket, and we want to know more. Yep, so today we're lucky enough to talk to the VP of Vulcan Development for ULA, Mark Pella. What has been your favorite ULA launch? Let us know via our social media pages at Space and Things Podcast on Instagram, threads at Facebook, or via the contact form on our website. You need to take a bigger breath there, Emily, I think. Anyway, and please consider <laughs> joining us over at patreon.com forward slash space and things but right now enjoy episode 164 of the space and things podcast try to do that in one breath like emily you're listening to the space and things podcast with emily carney and dave giles I'm Emily Carney. And I'm Dave Giles, and welcome to episode 164 of the Space and Things podcast. I'm away in the US this week, so this episode was pre-recorded last week. we still got something to talk about, though, which happened since we recorded episode 163. But if anything else has happened, breaking news or anything like that, we'll have to discuss that when I'm back in a couple of weeks. Anyway, let's crack on with our main feature. Yes, today is a big day as we've got one of the senior leadership members of one of the big space rocket companies. The United Launch Alliance, or ULA, are a company which we've mentioned many times on this podcast. Mm -hmm. It's a joint venture, but I took a breath this time. (laughs) It's a joint venture between two major aerospace companies, Boeing and Lockheed Martin. Established in 2006, ULA is leading provider of spacecraft launch services, offering reliable and cost-effective access to space for various missions, including satellites, scientific research, and national security payloads. ULA's most notable rockets include the Atlas V and the Delta IV, known for their successful launches and versatility. With a proven track record and a strong commitment to mission success, ULA continues to play a crucial role at advancing space exploration and satellite deployment, serving both commercial and government clients. Many high-profile payloads have been launched on ULA rockets, including the Curiosity rover in 2000. There's quite a lot. Curiosity rover in 2011, Perseverance rover in 2021, the Parker Solar Probe in 2018, the Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter in 1999. Holy crap, that's been around for a while. Juno in 2011 and Osiris Rex in 2016, just to name a few. Today, we're talking to Mark Peller, the VP of Vulcan Development at ULA. The Vulcan rocket is ULA's next generation launch vehicle designed to replace the aging Atlas V and Delta IV rockets. It's a versatile and powerful rocket capable of carrying a wide range of payloads to various orbits. One of its key features is its modular design, allowing customers to choose a number of solid rocket boosters and payload fairings, making it highly customizable for different missions. The Vulcan is powered by the innovative BE4 engines developed by Blue Origin, providing enhanced performance and efficiency. ULA claims to make the Vulcan more cost-effective and reliable, ensuring its place in the future of space launches. So, let's find out more. Let's light this candle. It's time to crack on. Hello, Mark. Thank you so much for taking some time with us today. I'm sure you're extremely busy. So firstly, if you don't mind, I'd love to get a little bit of background on yourself for our listeners, if that's okay. So how did you end up here at United Launch Alliance as VP of Vulcan Development? Yeah, absolutely. So I have led Vulcan Development from day one, and I've worked in launch and space my entire career. Uh, Prior to this, I 
had a number of key positions on both the Atlas and Delta programs. And then um, several years ago, our CEO called me up one day and said, I need your help um, trying to work out a path or a plan uh, to re-engine the Atlas vehicle. And uh, that's those are the, the modest beginnings of this program. And after we got into it, we realized the need not just to uh, re-engine Atlas, but to really focus on development of a brand new vehicle, a next generation vehicle. And that became Vulcan. And that's what I've been doing here uh, ever since. Fantastic. All right. You touched a little bit upon this. So let's talk about all things Vulcan Centaur. Uh, we're, we're all excited to see its inaugural launch. So first, what factors necessitated the development of the Vulcan launch vehicle? So, you know, the Atlas and Delta vehicles have served us very well. They served our country very well across a range of markets. But, you know, time moves on, technology moves on, our customers' needs move on. And so uh, to respond to those, we had the need to develop a next generation launch vehicle. And as I said, it, it started out modestly looking at something more straightforward just to re-engine the Atlas vehicle. Since we got into it and opened the hood, so to speak, and and realized we had an opportunity to do much more than that and develop a vehicle that could do everything Atlas and Delta could do and more and do it with all all within a single system. That was really the opportunity. And, uh, you know, at a very high level, that was the basic uh, charge that was given to me after we had, you know, made some progress, as I said, with those initial, uh, initial requests. And uh, that's what we've been working on ever since. What new technologies can we see on this um, Vulcan launch vehicle? For example, you know, I know that it utilizes new uh, Blue Origin engines. So there's new technology at all levels. You know, the basic system architecture that we developed um, is one of the keys. And that, you know, was a very high performance booster that we could adjust its performance through the addition of, you know, the latest generation of solid rocket motors to really dial in the performance depending upon the mission's needs. And how this was significant, and as I said, you know, our original task here was to find a way to do everything that we did with both Atlas and Delta, but do it with a single family of rockets. And so this, you know, flexible configuration that we developed allows us to fly the same type of mission we do on Delta IV in a three-body core, Delta IV heavy, to do that on a single stick Vulcan. So that single core booster, and just by adding some solid rocket motors to it, gives us equivalent or actually greater performance than that three core vehicle. And so that was, you know, very innovative. That was a departure from how we had done things on Delta with the Delta IV Heavy and the departure from how our competitors and other past rockets have achieved heavy lift performance. Um, on top of that, you know, to build upon that booster performance, we developed the next generation of the Centaur upper stage. Centaur is, you know, the most efficient, high-performance upper stage uh, to ever have flown, and we continue to build upon that here with this new generation. You know, those are some examples at the system level. Obviously, there's individual, you know, components and other elements of the vehicle that all have to add up uh, to provide those capabilities at the uh, at the system level. All right, and you touched on this a little bit, but let's talk a little bit more about the Centaur Five stage, uh, the Centaur upper stage in various configurations has been used for 
decades. I, I think it, they started developing it, God, in the 50s. Um, so what innovations can we expect from this centaur? Yeah, so first, this isn't your father's centaur. This is the next generation centaur. But it does draw upon those decades of experience with high energy upper stages. So we say high energy. It is a LOX hydrogen upper stage like the previous centaurs. Hydrogen being the most efficient propellant combination um, in terms of chemical propulsion. Um, hydrogen, um, very well suited, cryogenic propellant, very well suited to an upper stage application to give us not only that high performance, but longer duration. And then, you know, coupled with the next generation of the RL10 engine, um, really give it a, you know, very high performance. The other focus of Centaur has always been on being very volumetrically efficient. In other words, getting as much propellant on board as we can in the lightest possible structure. And this Centaur builds upon that experience. It remains a thin wall, stainless steel, pressure stabilized tank, common bulkhead, so no inert structure. So the lightest possible tank that we could achieve packing the most amount of propellant. In this generation of Centaur, we took that to new levels. This tank holds about two and a half times the volume and therefore the mass of propellant that the Centaur currently flies on Atlas. So that's a significant increase in performance that we can offer uh, to our customers. And there's a lot of other technology that, you know, behind the scenes that you don't see. We don't build a Centaur the way we built past Centaurs. We took advantage of the opportunity to implement a new state-of-the-art production line using robotic technology and extensive use of automation to help produce the tank, produce it, and the other primary pieces of the structure, produce it in a more consistent, higher quality, lower cost fashion, um, all to help us provide more value to our customers. So what kinds of missions can Vulcan support? For example, can it accommodate both like Department of Defense type missions and interplanetary deep space missions? You know, how flexible of a vehicle, launch vehicle is it? Yeah, and that was one of our challenges in coming up with a, a vehicle that could be flexible. And I talked a little bit about that already with the booster configuration to support a wide range of missions, anywhere from low Earth orbit to transfer orbits to direct inject to geostationary to interplanetary, as you said. And, and that's a challenge. And most vehicles tend to focus on one of those and really compromise performance those other orbits. In, on Vulcan, we've done a really good job of, of balancing the design to support that wide range of missions with really good performance. And so part of it, as I said, was the adjustability of the booster configuration enable that. But, you know, Vulcan is very competitive and offers, you know, very good performance across that full range of missions, including interplanetary. And uh, just like Atlas and Delta before it, that served the exploration missions, whether those were to Earth orbit or the moon or beyond to interplanetary, uh, we've come up with a vehicle that is even more capable and we look forward uh, to working with our customers to support those missions in the future. Now, we've had a couple of questions from some of our Patreon subscribers. Sure. Wizzo sent this one in. He said, you've worked on some of the most successful expendable launch vehicles of all time. In terms of overall US spacelift capability, how do you view the balance between expendable and partially reusable boosters? 
so I've had the opportunity to work on the space shuttle program, uh, Delta two, Delta four, Atlas five, and now Vulcan. And they all have served their markets and their customers very well and done it in different ways. Uh, you know, Vulcan is starting out as a fully expendable vehicle, but being designed from the beginning to introduce reusability. Oh, wow. Our focus on reusability here with Vulcan is on the economics and doing that in a way that minimizes the impact of the primary mission in terms of performance, retaining mm-hmm. all the performance of the expendable version as possible. And, you know, we're covering the most valuable portions of the booster. It's all focused on economics and being able to pass along that benefit to our customer. So reusability is really cool, but you need to look at what value reusability provides and how you can pass it on the customer. And, you know, there's different solutions to this problem and there's a lot of different interesting approaches. No one is wrong. Different rockets and their different architectures are going to lend themselves better to different approaches to reusability. For Vulcan, we think we found a pretty good approach that really matches the system architecture that we've chosen and, you know, best supports our customers on their missions. Fantastic. So we've also had a question from uh, David Cuniff, who said that his question might be a tough one to answer. He says, one of the key benefits of having multiple ways to get to space is to help provide a range of price and reliability options for mission operators. For the US government, ULA has long represented the gold standard for the highest value payloads. With multiple commercial options now available, how does ULA continue to present its value proposition for future launch contracts as they are most likely highest cost, if not highest reliability and capability option? Yeah, that's an interesting question. First, there's a you know a few probably myths there that we need to spell. Well, first of all, no one wants their spacecraft ending up in the ocean. Whether you're Absolutely. a commercial customer or you know, national security or some other very exquisite payload. No one wants it going in the ocean. And I understand some people have, maybe believe they have relative differences in their risk tolerance, but in the end, they all want to have with very high confidence that the mission is going to be successful. You know, we've been been able to differentiate ourselves with extremely high reliability. All of our customers demand something at that level or at least something very close. And the other part about how do we, how does ULA, um, remain competitive or increase our competitiveness in those other markets, you know, beyond national security and Vulcan is a key element to that. And, you know, we have gone toe to toe with our competitors and national security procurement and been not just overall best value, but actually the lowest price provider. And that's the case right now with the phase two national security launch procurement where we were not just the best value, but the lowest price, but we offer a very attractive, product, you know, all the markets that we serve. And one of the things that Vulcan offers is, you know, very high lift capability in very large volumetric payload capability. When we look at dollars per pound to orbit, when you're able to maximize from a volumetric and payload capacity, Vulcan is very competitive in the marketplace for both, you know, commercial, civil, and national security uh, markets. All right. So the next question is, you know, many people complain about slipping launch dates in spaceflight, and the Vulcan launch date has slipped from what it was initially supposed to be. However, ULA has a uh, culture of extensive testing to ensure 
that its launches are successful. I think you just said it earlier, you know, nobody wants their their payload in the in the ocean. So what would you like to say to those who might be impatiently waiting for the Vulcan debut and, and how spectacular do you expect that first launch to be? Good thing has come to those who wait. Yeah. Uh, so first <laughs> of all, as you said, we have purposely been extremely rigorous in how we test all of the systems on Vulcan, whether it's you know at the component level or at the stage level or full integrated system tests like we did earlier this year when we conducted the flight readiness firing. So you know, we're going into our first launch with a high degree of confidence. It has a real payload for a real customer that's expecting that to be successfully deployed, just like all of our subsequent missions. So it may be taking a little bit longer to get there. We had you know a few challenges we've had to overcome on the path to get there, but the whole focus is in you know, maximizing the reliability and having a successful first flight and putting us in a good position then to turn the corner into recurring operations and continuing that success with our second, third, and subsequent flight. So taking a little bit longer than we had expected, uh, but there's good reasons for that and it's positioning us well for the future. Okay. And finally, what has been your personal favorite launch? Oh, that's a great question. Um, I don't know if I have a personal favorite launch. You know, people often ask me, you know, the highlights of my career, um, getting the opportunity to work on the space shuttle program, work on a program, you know, putting humans in the space. And even though when I worked on it early in my career, I played a very minor role, just having that opportunity is certainly a highlight of my career. The other highlight of my career is being the chief engineer for the Delta program. Wow. Um, after I worked on the space shuttle program, I had the opportunity to work on Delta IV development from the early phases of the program and my way up to where I was the chief engineer uh, for a vehicle that I had helped develop and to launch 24 Delta vehicles and successfully put on orbit multiple payloads as a Delta chief engineer that was extremely gratifying and that was certainly the second highlight of my career. And the third is, is yet to come and that's the successful first launch of Vulcan. Yes. It's been a <laughs> tremendous, tremendously challenging but yet rewarding as we have developed Vulcan and as we get closer to the first launch. Um, but we're really looking forward to first launch and I know that's going to be the, uh, the third highlight of my career and I hope there's more beyond that. Absolutely. And I know that Emily and I will both be watching on that first launch and looking forward to it as well. So thank you so much for your time today. Uh, this has been really wonderful. And, uh, and we wish you all the best with the, with the upcoming launches and I uh, hope it goes very well. My pleasure. And thank you for your time. Thank you. We're going for launch. It's time for Space and Things. All I have to say is I'm really excited. I, I really love talking to him about why Vulcan was developed because I think people see these new rockets as, yeah, you know, they got this new rocket going and stuff like that. But there are reasons, there are very strategic reasons for why these launch vehicles are developed. They fulfill a purpose. If you look at rocketry from the very beginnings, I mean, at the beginning it was to see, okay, can we actually do this? And then it became, how much thrust do we need to get, how, how much power do we need to get specific things up in space? How can we do that? 
So I, I, I love his explanations as to why Vulcan and Vulcan Centaur is being devised. And also, uh, uh, as just a space enthusiast, I'm just excited to see that thing finally go when it goes. It's going to be freaking awesome. I plan on um, being there. Full disclosure, I, I work for Celestis. We have actually a couple payloads aboard uh, the first Vulcan flight. So I'm really nice. excited about seeing that. I'm very excited about seeing that thing go finally. Another thing I wanted to mention is, you know, I'm very glad that ULA, and this isn't a slam against other aerospace companies. I don't want anybody else listening out there thinking, well, she's this and that. No, it's nothing like that at all. But I think ULA, ULA has been very public about their commitment to testing. Uh, They have a culture that's really dedicated to that kind of thing. And I think they are among the gold standard of launch providers. And that's for a reason. You know, they they test the crap out of stuff. And some people might criticize that. But like Mark said, you don't want your expensive satellite at the bottom of the ocean. <laughs> it's not meant to do that. So um, I'm very glad, for one, that they have a culture where they test the crap out of this stuff. So when Vulcan finally launches, whenever that is, even if it got pushed back a bit, it's going to go just right. And you want that. And like I said, it's not a diss to other rocket providers. If space was easy, everybody'd be able to do it. And of course, there have been failures in rocketry. I know ULA has a has a really dedicated culture to testing, testing, testing. And I think that's really important. And, and we test for reasons. You know, you test so you can figure out all the unknowns and hopefully these things won't happen again. So really cool interview. And like I said, I'm just really freaking excited to see this thing go. Uh, I think it's going to be spectacular. I think it's interesting, isn't it? ULA is certainly the heritage space company there at the moment, isn't it? It's it's the one that's been around, yeah. you know, obviously before the merger in 2006. It's, it's been around, you know, the Atlas and Delta. There have been the workhorses for so many years. And particularly after Challenger, they really took up the, the slack there, didn't they, in terms of getting payloads into orbit for the US. Some of the things he said there were really interesting and surprise me i like the idea that this rocket has multiple functions in terms of the variety of launches it can do and the variety of payloads it can it can manage and i also like the fact that they're thinking forward this is a rocket which will develop and evolve as it goes forward and i like that i think that's interesting but also i was surprised to hear him say that they were the cheapest option for the last defense round because everyone's everyone that I mean that's what he said wasn't it and everyone is telling you that yeah. no one compete with compete with SpaceX's prices yeah and it was interesting and his reaction to that question as well was uh, we we need to do better at dispelling those myths i think he said something yeah. along those lines and i think that was really interesting and and i wasn't expecting that to come from that and you and I are not in any place to pit one company, nor do we, do we want to, to pit one company against enough. And that's not what we're trying to do here at all. Exactly. Yeah, I want to make that real clear that we're not here doing that. No. we, we You know, we're not here doing that. We're just interested in Vulcan and how it's come about, basically. Yeah, we, absolutely. You know? And, and I, I am really excited about the idea of there just being another rocket. And I think because of the, the heritage, because of the success of Delta and Atlas, has there ever been... I'm asking you this because I know my answer. And I, I think we have to be careful not to jinx it as well. But has there ever been a new rocket which you've been more confident about? Honestly, no. 
Because ULA has a long heritage. That's why I'm saying that. Exactly. And that's that's how I feel about it. And plus, I know they've tested. I mean, I've talked with a few ULA people, not in depth, but I've talked to a few of them. And I know they are testing the crap out of this thing. They are testing it to make sure this first launch, which is scheduled to happen soon, it's carrying the, um, I believe, the Astrobotic Peregrine lander, which will be, I think, the first United States commercial lander headed to the moon. And I want to say it's going to be one of the first missions since Apollo 17 in 1972. That's a big freaking deal. Like, but as we both know, and as a lot of space people know, you know, the moon is a huge target for the next however many years. A lot of spaceflight focus is starting to shift to exploring the moon and even settling the moon again, or or at least having long, I don't know, settling, but long-term habitation, how to live on the moon. So this mission is going to be real important. And I think uh, Peregrine is carrying a few things aboard it, but it also has a scientific mission. It's not just going there just to say, hey, we went to the moon. But um, it has a scientific mission as well. And it's really important that at least it gets off the ground. As we all know, you know, payloads are really at the mercy of their launch vehicle. And at least you want to get past that face, you know, of, okay, we we made the ascent okay, and it's in orbit now, and now we can do TLI and head to the moon and do all the stuff that comes after it. So, yeah, I I have all the confidence in the world this will go off well, and I mean, because they've tested the heck out of it. It'd be different if it was, like I said, not making shade on any other company or, or launch provider or NASA. I expected Artemis 1 to have a lot more problems than it did, because it was a brand launch vehicle and it didn't and i was and i hate saying that i'm not trying to be like i i wanted it i didn't want it to fail but at the same time you know it didn't have people on it which was good but i expected to hear a lot more problems with it because it was a first time launch and first time launches uh, usually have issues with it you look back at the old titan rockets back in back in the day usually their first launches didn't go so well because they were kind of figuring it out I think ULA has, like I said, has such a heritage and they have a lot of experience with that. I mean, decades. The people out there have decades of experience with this. I think I have a lot of confidence in this one. My full disclosure, Emily, I mean, you've got a fancy one that you've worked directly with them. My full disclosure is that I have a ULA golf shirt that's cool, though. I have a ULA t-shirt. Yeah, yeah I do have uh, a ULA. They have some good merch, too. They uh, do. Well, <laughs> I think, I personally think that ULA suffer a little bit from being the granddad. Does that make sense? Because yeah. they are the older company that's been around for, you know, that, as we've called them, the heritage company. But they're the granddad, really. Yeah. And therefore, they, they don't, they're not considered the cool company, are they? And I, they're not. They're not yep, for the cool kids, and and I think that's a shame. Yeah. And that's why when I was at, at when I was at Kennedy Space Center, and I saw that there was ULA merch, I'm like, I'm buying a ULA merch because it's yeah. They're not the new kids on the block that everyone's raving about, but they've been there, they've done it, yeah. and they do a great job. I I think it's important that we acknowledge that. I think people find it very easy to criticize things that have been around and been successful. 
People like knocking things yeah. that have been successful, don't they? Yeah, exactly. You know, you see it all the time in uh, sports. People get a little bit older and it, it reached the peak of their powers yeah. or pop stars and, and rock stars get successful. Once they're on their third album, it's good. Yeah. People are f- looking for ways for them yeah. to... Once they get in their 40s, people are like, man, this person's old. Yeah. They, need to, they need to... They need to do something, you know? <laughs> and people want them to foul, don't they? They're, they're looking for ways to criticize them. And uh, I know yeah. I, I personally find it very difficult with you. I think they cons- consistently do a great job. And, and I, I love the CEO as well. I think Tory's wonderful. I think the, the way he projects publicly and how honest he is, I think it's really refreshing. Yeah. And, and I think for a granddad company, and I say that, I do say that kind of ironically, but for a, for a heritage company to have yeah. a CEO... We say it with respect, though. We, uh, we yeah, say, absolutely. We're not saying it disrespectfully we're saying it like you know a, a sort of a elder company like a, yeah. a, a a company that has wisdom and that they know what they're they really yeah. know their stuff yeah yeah as the gandalf of space gordy howe yeah uh, for those who are not familiar with hockey gordy howe was a badass hockey player who played into his 50s which is like unheard of but he was still killing him when he was in his 50s the age did not matter he was still slamming people he was still doing his job so go on i'm sorry yeah i prefer gandalf anyway um yeah <laughs> that's the guy's the yeah, a little more violent yeah. gordy Howe's a little more of a violent example but the point is you know an old guy who still had it even though he was hurting people anyway go on i, I think you would expect the ceo of the granddad of space to be a little bit more uptight yeah, not as open. Not as uh, yeah. Do you know? Do you know? Almost like arrogant. I would. I think yeah. I would expect more arrogance and uptightness from a CEO of a company that, that had all these upstarts coming in trying to replace them, and you don't yeah. see that from Tory, and you don't see that from ULA, and I think that's a really something that they can be really proud of. Uh, but it, it, yeah, I'm just excited about this launch. I loved that interview and. Of course, I'll be posting any social media links or relevant websites in our show notes, which you can find on spaceandthingspodcast.com or by clicking the link in the description of this episode in your podcast provider. There's also a bonus question with Mark, which you can view along with a full unedited video on our Patreon page. Head over to patreon.com forward slash spaceandthings to find out how you can be involved. And while I'm mentioning Patreon, a big thank you to Derek, who has provided us with our stings this week. Talking of which... New episodes every Thursday. Make sure you're subscribed on your podcast provider. So while we don't have a what's caught our eye in spaceflight this week section, there is still something I'd like to talk about, if that's okay, Emily. Absolutely. Right. Absolutely. Uh, some of you may have seen this on social media. On Wednesday, the 11th of October, I went to the brand new European Space Agency Conference Centre in Harwell in Oxfordshire, which is wow. my new home county. So yeah, that worked out well. Who knew there were so many space companies in Oxfordshire? I had no idea. It makes sense. It's near Oxford University, but I had no idea. That's cool, though. Yeah, it's cool. Uh, So it was a free event, which anyone could get a ticket for, and it included lunch and drinks at the end of the day as well, which is nice. It was produced by our friend Christina Corp, who we've had on the podcast a couple of times, along with the people at Harwell. And it was called the Rise Together Solutions Summit. The basic premise was to bring people together within the UK space sector to discuss how to continue to improve diversity and inclusion. 
I'll be honest, it probably wasn't something I needed to go to in the sense that I'm not a corporate entity within the UK space industry, nor am I an employer uh, or an employee for that matter. I'm a musician with a podcast. Uh, But it still was really interesting. And there were plenty of standout moments throughout the day. Uh, There was a number of panels covering different topics, women in space, using pathways to career in space, Inclusion Next uh, was the title of one, which include introducing me to the idea of reverse mentoring, more on that in a bit, Uh, reframing space and building inclusive environments. Uh, There was also a keynote speech called Inspiring Inclusion by Roma Agrawal, who is an engineer in the construction industry and is now a freelance broadcaster and author. It was a really inspiring keynote. The panels included people from a wide range of different industries, not just space, and all were at different stages of their careers, from graduates to CEOs. And the majority of the panellists were women, which was great to see. In fact, the majority of the audience was also women, which potentially means there was may have been a bit of preaching to the converted going on but i also think that the openness of the panelists would have been very empowering for audience members but my other concern with that is that perhaps some of the people that really needed to hear that some of the messages weren't there and as always with these things it's how do we reach the people that need to hear these messages uh and that's exactly so my, my key takeaway from the event and uh feel free to jump in and comment in on any of these if you have any thoughts but Number one, there is still a hell of a lot of work to do in order to encourage a more diverse workforce within the space and other sectors in the UK and to make those workplaces inclusive. However, there are a lot of positives too and a lot of things moving in the right direction. It's still really important that these conversations take place as there is a number of people who aren't even aware there's a problem. Uh, And I I think that's really interesting, isn't it? That, That idea that... To some, when you say, oh, I'm going to a conference about trying to promote diversity, they're like, we still need to have that conversation. Yes. Yes, we do. Yeah, we still got to have it. Yeah. We're not there yet. And and that conversation has evolved so much over the last few years. You know, now, now we're even talking about inclusion. It's not just diversity. It's diversity and inclusion. And I think that's a, a really wonderful thing yeah. that is now happening. So. Number two, this was uh, something that I opened my eyes right at the end. An email was sent out to ESA staff in 2019, which informed them that 60% of their workforce will be retiring between 2020 and 2030. 60%. Wow. Obviously, a lot of those are old white men. So there will be opportunities for qualified people of all backgrounds to fill lots of roles in that time. And that doesn't even factor in the fact that there's huge growth in the sector at the same time. So the opportunities yeah. f- for people to get involved in space in the space sector at the moment are huge. There's so many. So my third point, reverse mentoring. Have you heard about this, Emily? Have you ever heard of reverse mentoring? You know, I'm embarrassed. I actually have not. Would it would it Either yeah, do I. I would love to be I would love to be introduced to this idea because obviously I've heard of mentoring. So this is a really interesting idea and it's been trialed and been put in place in some of the big aerospace agencies. And I imagine other sectors as well are including this in, in what they're doing. So the idea is that you get someone in senior management being mentored by a younger member of the workforce to help them to understand where and why things might be problematic that's a great idea. It's a great idea, isn't it? That's it's a, a great that's idea. That's a fantastic idea because I, I I hate saying this, but you know, I work mainly in space history. Most space historians are guys. 
And yeah. I hate saying that. And, and I've worked with a lot of them and they're wonderful. I don't want to make it sound like, oh my God, everybody's out. It's horrible, you know, but there's been a few of them and I won't mention any names who could probably benefit from reverse mentoring because it's obvious they haven't, they just don't have, it's not something they're used to. You know, they're not used to working alongside a, a younger woman or something like that. I don't know. And, and plus the way they view certain issues is different. Because I have a different viewpoint. I've seen things go differently. Not to say that my viewpoint is perfect or, you know, anything like that, but it's just different. I want to see other women enter space history and stuff, younger women. I'd love to see that. But, you know, we have to have sort of that understanding in place of, okay, this is what it's like now versus what it was like in the 60s or the 70s. Yeah, I think that's a great idea. I think it's, it is a wonderful idea. I think it's really important. And it's just something I'd never considered. And the idea of, of you know, creating safe spaces to be able to have conversations with people and, and having that system in place where you can actually have a conversation with someone who's senior to you and, and help them understand the way things are viewed these days. And I think that's a really, yeah. really interesting idea. So I'd never heard of that concept before. It's apparently being rolled out in quite a lot of corporations these days. And, and I'm all in favour of it. Cool. I, think, I think it's really cool. Um, so... My fourth takeaway is there's an issue with how people perceive the space sector. Uh, and what I mean by that is most people assume that there are only jobs for engineers, scientists, or pilots. Mm -hmm. uh, but obviously, as you know, as a historian yeah. and as a media creator, there's a huge amount of jobs that are currently yeah. vacant because people aren't aware they exist. Uh, and it, was, in, it yeah. was pointed out by one of the panelists that Pretty much any time you see a, cam a campaign for space or an advertisement for a space job, it has rockets, astronauts, uh, or, and people be people in lab coats or people in building yeah. things and stuff like that. And does that imagery really make you think, oh, yeah, they want social media managers, for example? No, it makes you think they want, they makes you think they want engineers. And yeah. I hate to say this, but when you think of an engineer... And this and this concept was introduced to me by Marianne Dyson, the former flight controller, one of the first women flight controller at NASA. When you think of four engineers in a car, what do you think of? Are they guys or girls? They're guys. Yeah. They're normally guys. There's a bias there, too, as well. So when you think of, you know, space flight, you see, you know, space something, you see, oh, you know, you think engineers, you think other guys, they're guys. And that's why people don't apply to these jobs. Yeah, well, to follow up that point, there, there was someone there who, mess, who mentioned that in advertisement, uh, I think he said 55%, or it was around that number, I I'm, can't remember, I didn't write it down, but around uh, over 50% of any time you see a woman in advertising is to promote household items, as in yeah. the household cleaning items. 55% yeah, like of Swiffer. any time... Any time you see a woman in advertising, over 50% of the time is to do with cleaning things. Yeah. So that, as you say, that, that all that does is reinforce the biases that we already have in our head that that's where women belong, which clearly isn't the case. But yeah. we're still fighting these stereotypes and the media industry and advertising and marketing have got a lot to answer for within that. Anyway, that that's certainly something that the, sp the, the space sector has to get to deal with, not in terms of even necessarily gender, but just in letting people know that they want other types of people, not just engineers, not just pilots. The fact that they want 
historians. They want creatives. They want all kinds of people. They need they need lawyers and they need accountants and all these other things that are there within the space sector. Anyway, five, five, and I've got six points. So this is number five. I've got a lot of respect for big companies who are actually striving to make the world a better place. And what I mean by that is that actually trying to make sure that every individual person can reach their potential. And that can't be the best options in terms of short-term profits, but it's really refreshing to hear that people are even trying to achieve that within the current corporate framework. Obviously, no one's there yet, but they're trying to to make strides with reverse mentoring or all these kind of other ideas. To make the world a better place, you have to make it better for the people in your world and and individual people. And I think that's what they're focusing on. And I love that. I think that's really refreshing. Of course, none of it really affects me because I'm self-employed, but it was still refreshing. I was still inspired and energized to see that those things are are, are taking place. And finally on this, I think my favorite part of the day was the reframing space panel, um, which was about creativity, essentially, and trying to encourage people to be creative within the space sector and the, the nervousness there is that within the British schooling in particular, creativity is being slammed. Like it, it's being yeah. almost pulled apart. Well, there's, so much, there's so much fo- f- yep. focus on English and, uh, and maths and math. Sorry, as you guys say, there's so much focus on, on those <laughs> that that cr- creative side, those other creative things are kind of getting pushed to the sides and forgotten about. And they were talking about how important it is to be creative and, and embrace creativity and here's the example they gave. There was a guy who works for a big aerospace company in Oxford, but it's a fairly big company. And they, my understanding is they build spacecraft, like satellites that get taken up. And obviously they send them up in these small boxes and a lot of them need to unfold. So they were trying to perfect their folding skills, right? How, yeah. can, we, how can we make these things fold better so that when they unfold, less chance of them breaking? How, how can we make those, those joints stronger so yeah they were thinking trying to think outside the box who can we get in who knows folding they employed an origami master that's awesome okay that makes sense because they know how to fold and i understand strong joints and and how to make things strong and and it's it's that level of thinking which I thought that is genius. That's such clever thinking. And and ultimately, if you're trying to get something to fold, speaking to someone who folds professionally or folds to a high standard makes a lot of sense. Yeah. It makes so much that makes sense. sense. Yeah, they're gonna understand that and they're gonna understand how to fold something and if it un- and it, if it unfurls, it's not gonna get hung up on anything. So it was a really great day. I I've now been to my first space conference, Emily. That's awesome. Oh, that's the first of I think it it's the first of many more. Hopefully, yeah. And uh, you'll you'll probably go to yeah, I think you'll go to several of them and did you get to keep the the badge? No. Did they let you no, keep that they didn't. or dang it. Dang. I know. I know. <laughs> I know. One time I had a I think one time I had a JSC badge and I couldn't keep it. I was yeah. like, damn it. That's why I took a I photo like, of it. <laughs> I think I have a picture of the badge. Because yeah. I it, I had I had one that was like a paper badge and I still have that one, but I think I had another one that was like a you know, the NASA yeah. badge. And I was like, oh. I was like, Oh, I gotta keep it. Yeah, I've got all my so, yeah, old paper BBC ones from when I used to do stuff down there. But yeah, it's a, it's a similar thing, isn't it? That that kind of, ooh, fancy, got a badge. Yeah, like, ooh. I, I've got an ESA badge. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's fun. I'll be honest, I did feel as I was walking up, 
I I arrived at five past ten, and the first panel was at ten thirty. And I walked in, got my badge, and I walked out, and I went for a walk because I I was like, I don't feel like I belong here. And that I I just came back in because because obviously I'm not in the space in, industry, and everyone there kind of knew each other. I felt a little bit like oh. I'm going to step away. But it, it was all right. I, I got over yeah. that. It's just an alien place for me. What was really nice is there was a space yeah. hipster there, Emily. Alan. Yeah. One of your mods, Alan Bickerstaff. Yeah. Uh, he yeah. was there. Hey, Alan. Uh, and it was great to hang out with him as well. So that was pretty cool. He's cool. It was great to 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 go to this thing. I will keep my eye out for other things. And even though it oh, perhaps awesome. wasn't necessarily relevant to my life and what I do, it was still really cool to be there and to see what's happening behind the scenes and to see what conversations are happening. It's quite inspiring, as I said, just to know that there are people in the higher places of bigger companies trying to make the world a better place. I love that. Yeah. I definitely think it's relevant to what you're doing because we're talking about it now, you well, know, and point. that to me makes all the difference, you know, that we're discussing it on this show because there's a lot of podcasts out there not I'm not criticizing any of them. I don't want to get hate mail from people like, how dare you diss every other pot? No, it's nothing like that. But these are important things that have to be talked about. And I don't think everybody's talking about them. Either they're not talking about them or they're just not really discussing them like kind of in depth. And you just did. And I think that's awesome. So to me, it's definitely relevant. Well, hopefully someone's listened to this and, and might go and look up the Rise Together pledge or whatever there was you know there's the, some of the female ceos at the end who were there did a big stand and said we need to take this forward we need to take these ideas forward uh, and and it's all there i'll put some links in the show notes as well sounds awesome splashing down after a fiery re-entry this is space and things okay that's it for this week thank you all for listening Please let us know what you thought, uh, get in touch on social media, or leave us a review. This is the first time we've interviewed someone from one of the major players in space rocketry. So it feels like a big milestone, but hopefully the first of many. Yes. To our Patreon subscribers, thank you so much for your continued support. And we have 70 of you at the moment. Um, we do have 35 more episodes in which to reach our goal of 100 Patreons before show 200. So if uh, you'd be inclined, we do have special things to our supporters. Please head over to patreon.com slash space and things to get involved. But don't forget, in space, no one can hear you meet. Thanks for listening. This has been the Space and Things Podcast with Emily Carney and Dave Giles.